When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. He opens it up with that mix of a spaghetti western you know, sort of thing. And then a classical uh, piece, he mixes these two together and it's really interesting how he sets the tone through uh, the use of that that sort of a mix up. His character was so amazing. I mean, he, he just did an amazing job acting in this. As soon as I saw this for the first time, I went, I looked up all the movies that he was in and okay, I need to watch all these movies because he just did such an amazing job. He plays a really good villain that you start to really hate towards the end. <laughs> Hello, film fans. Joining us today, we have Brian. Hey, how's it going? Dan. Hello. And as always, Kobe. Hello. And we're here to review Tarantino's Inglorious Bastards. Thank you, as always, to the mighty people for the mighty, mighty tunes. And thanks to Ben from Rockwood Audio for his awesome editing skills. Please do remember to write a review and rate us on Apple Podcasts anywhere you can do where you listen to the podcast because it really does help us. And you can join in the conversation with us on Twitter at FlixWatcherPod and on Instagram at FlixWatcher. Hello and welcome to this episode of Flix Watcher Podcast. Joining us remotely today, we have Dan and Brian. If you would like to say hello and tell the listeners a little bit more about who you are and what you do, please. Yeah, I'm Dan, a host of Based on a True Story podcast, and I'm really looking forward to chatting about a fictional history <laughs> movie. <laughs> so um, based, based on a true story... Um, I don't know about you, but when I see that kind of come up on a film or, or kind of know, I sit there and I'm like, so then how much of this is true and how much of this is kind of fictionalized? And I think this comes from kind of finding out a lot of cool runnings was not how it happened. On that. <laughs> so that was like the moment for me when I lost all kind of like faith in in cool run in in based on a true story because <laughs> so much of cool runnings didn't happen. There was a Jamaican bobsled team. The end. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, it's interesting because there's another film, um, um, the Eddie the Eagle Edwards one, which is also mm. based on that particular Olympics as well. Yeah. And hardly any of that is accurate either. So I went into that going, hmm. I'm going to go with the cool runnings kind of vibe on this and say that none of this happened apart from there was that Olympics and he yeah. was there. 
But how much does that matter to you, though, Helen, if it's not based on a true story? Because if, if you've been entertained, like with, with Cool Runnings, it sounds like you're entertained with it. Does it pull the rug from underneath you? Or are you like, oh, I want to see the documentary on that? I don't know. I just, I guess it depends on how much, whether they've like gone, oh, actually, this happened in a different place or a, a different person said that. I mean, we had pride on, didn't we? And mm. when we were, we sort of go, what was true and what wasn't, we would sort of said, I think one character was completely invented. So what they were saying was like an amalgamation of perhaps different people's things. So I don't know, maybe that is a bit easier to kind of get behind than basically just making something up because it sounds like a good story or fits in there. I think the, 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 the Nadir for me is, I do, I, I'm, if it's based on a true story and there's a kernel of truth and the, and the thrust of the story is good, but um, it's Bohemian Rhapsody when, um, and I'm going to slightly spoil Bohemian Rhapsody, but people know that Freddie Mercury died and he had HIV AIDS. But the way in, um, in Bohemian Rhapsody, he tells the rest of his band that he's got he's got AIDS just as about just as about to step out onto the stage on Live Eight on Live Aid. I just thought that's not when he did that. There's no there's no need for you to change that that part of the storyline. People know that that didn't happen. Um, but anyway, yeah. So so Dan, when you're when you're re- reviewing films, when you're picking films uh, to talk about for your show. Um, and by the way, if you have ever seen Basically a True Story and want to think and want to find out more about the, the truth behind that, then you need to go to Dan's podcast. That's exactly why it's there. Cool Runnings um, is there and yep. Bohemian Rhapsody. Yep. Um, so, yeah, does it does it take away from the enjoyment for you in the, in the same way it does for Helen? If it's um, the kernel of truth is just hold, all that holds the, the film together. No, um, I've... Over the years, there's I've learned that some movies are going to be really close to it and some of them aren't. And it's really, it's just the nature of any experience in life. Like for some experience, it's going to take years and years for this overall story to happen. And how do you try to condense that into like an hour and a half or two hours? You're going to have to cut stuff out. You're going to have to, or if there's, you know, an ensemble cast of 20 people that re- were really involved you can't really have 20 people on screen in a movie and be able to keep track of everybody. So you have to cut that down to an amalgamation of one or two people or things like that. So you kind of start to see these trends of common things that happen and it doesn't really take away the enjoyment for me because it is, it's entertainment, you know, it's, it's not going to be a documentary. There's going to be good movies and bad movies like anything that are based on a true story or not based on a true story. Is there any is there any trope in these based on a true story films that does completely kind of turn you off in any way, shape, or form? Or, um, I can't. I mean, off the top of my head, I can't really. I can't really think of anything that that is specific to that. I mean, there's mm. again, like I said, there's good movies and bad movies, and I don't think being based on a true story affects it one way or the other. If it's going to be a bad movie, it's going to be a bad movie. <laughs> <laughs> That's just the way it is. Um. But no, I can't think of anything that really specifically turns me off on on that side. I think I think the, the thing I said where the, there's no reason why they change the timeline for something in Bohemian Rhapsody is is an easy thing where lots of people know and love Queen and they know the story and they know what when things happen. I think things like that was where it's almost like recent history. Where I think you still could have done that within the context of the film and it would have been fine. Um, but my, I had a friend of mine um, like a couple of days ago. She she watched Fargo. Um, she might be listening. Hi, Jess. And she was like, "Kobe, Fargo's not real. What's 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 going on there? How can they do that? How can they get away with this? Um, have you seen Fargo? Mm-hmm. 
Are you are you aware of that that intro oh, yeah. at the start? Yep. And... Yep. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. The whole reason why they did that was to play on the fact that movies make things up. And hey, we're just going to say <laughs> that this is based on a true story, but it's not. <laughs> <laughs> I do love that first that first paragraph in in the Fargo TV show and the film. I think I love it every time that. Those yeah. words come on the screen. But anyway, uh, Brian, who are you? Sorry, we took a while to get to you. <laughs> That's okay. Uh, hey, my name is Brian Collins, and I'm a digital marketer. I live in New Zealand, and I work for a nonprofit health care provider in the far north. And you are friends with Dan, uh, I guess, through, through films. You have a shared kindred of films. Is that right? Sure, yeah. Um, we actually worked together at one point, but uh, we've, we've done a <laughs> podcast before. But yeah, we share a lot of interest. Uh, we share our love of discussion of film, I think, but we rarely share the same uh, evaluation. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that's, that's when you get cinephiles in a room, that's the thing, mm-hmm. isn't it? You enjoy arguing about mm-hmm. points. Sure. And it's, it's very boring if everyone agrees or everyone disagrees in, <laughs> in the same way. You have to have a, a chunk, a kernel of truth. And myself and Helen on the same film quiz and I think every now and again we just there's a couple of guys there there's that one guy Will who might listen now he doesn't like animation so sometimes someone just kind of throws in what about what about Toy Story Will have you never seen Toy Story he's like no um so sometimes you need you need that antagonism sometimes to to make things fun sure um we are we are talking about Inglourious Bastards which is your choice Dan Mm -hmm. um can you tell us um why you chose it in the first instance and um, a brief synopsis and also is it true <laughs> yeah well so as we were just talking about as you may have guessed i am a big fan of historical movies and world war ii movies are probably my favorite kind of historical movie uh just grew up with them my, my dad was a big world war ii movie fan so i i started to get into that um i'm also a big f- another reason why i picked this was um i'm a big fan of alternative history so mm. one of the first book series that i read as a kid was harry turtle does uh, world war series which is during world war ii aliens attack and everybody has to fight off the aliens and then it's but then it starts to get into well that means that the third reich wasn't defeated so what is the world like when the third reich is still around and the war didn't end the way that it did and um and this movie has a lot of those types of you know what if this had happened in in history and i'm kind of alluding to that that it is not a true story <laughs> um, it, 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 there are elements of it for sure you know there was a world war ii and there were nazis and such but um so the basic synopsis it's, it's set in 1944 during world war ii and after that's actually it starts off in 1941 when there's a jewish cinema owner who witnessed her family get murdered at the hands of a Nazi colonel. Um, and then it hops forward to 1944. She owns the cinema and it's in Nazi-occupied Paris. And she plans revenge against the Nazis when she's forced to host the premiere of a Nazi film. And simultaneously, we see a group of Jewish-American soldiers nicknamed the Bastards plan to <laughs> take advantage of the Nazi high command being all in one place and take them all at one, out at once. Or maybe I should say... Nazis, as Brad Pitt's character calls Brad them, is he, he says <laughs> from Tennessee. But that's the basic plot. Well, I'm, I mean, guessing by the fact you chose this film in like history, that you're you're a big fan of it. How does it rank in? How does it kind of rank in the Tarantino and and World War films for you? Uh, even, even though it's not true, it. I mean, it's my favorite Tarantino film. Um, I, I wouldn't say that it's my favorite historical film, but um, I guess I. Oh don't see it as a, I mean, because it is 
fictional. I, I don't yeah. see it as a straight up, you know, historical film. And so I can separate that side of it. Um, and, you know, tons of movies use history in, in this way to try to make it seem more realistic. Right. But uh, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's, yeah. it's up there for sure. I, it's, it's not a f- my favorite historical movie by any means, but it is my favorite Tarantino. Ryan, how does this sit for you as a, as a film in Glorious Bastards? As a film? Um, yeah. Yeah, I think it's really uh, an interesting uh, piece. I don't think that it tries to um, reflect history at all. I think a lot of it is is much like what Tarantino does, which is create these sort of revenge fantasies. Um, mm. And I, th- I think he, he sets this up intentionally uh, so that he's not ju- he's not judged by historical standards. He starts the movie off with "Once Upon a Time," right? He tells us right up front that this is fictional and that it is sort of fantasy like. Uh, but as far as the stand up as a as a film, I think it's uh, it's probably in his top three. I would say. What else? What else is in that top three for you? <laughs> uh, two is Pulp Fiction. Number one is Reservoir Dogs. Okay. Okay. So it's the, it's the most recent of his films that you like um, that's come out. Helen, right. what, what, we've, we've had a few Tarantino. We've had Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction so far. Um, where are you on this on Inglorious and Tarantino in general? So um, I think this is probably down my low of Tarantino. I think the, oh, really? Yeah. Hmm. So I've only, I saw this at the cinema and I can't remember having watched it um, again and probably wouldn't have without you having picked it um so yeah this is um, like i don't the, i hate i hate the hateful eight um <laughs> i hate that film so much um, what about so, once upon a time in hollywood have i haven't seen, seen that? that so i think the, i think that would be lower <laughs> well I'm not, I'm not sure i i think sort of having slightly revisited some of his films more recently and um kind of with the sort of me too and sort of you know kind of the stories around that kind of era and tarantino and uh, i don't know i just i wasn't that bothered about once upon a time in in hollywood so i haven't seen that one yet and then what came before then it was hateful eight and before that was django i quite enjoyed django i was um i think that's the last time i could probably say that i kind of enjoyed um a tarantino um i think this so is this... i think this is a bit a bit patchy i think there's some good bits um there's some bits that don't land as well um yeah i mean it's it's a tar- it's a tarantino film isn't it so it's incredibly violent um there's moments of <laughs> you know bizarre humor and um you know the the IMDb trivia for this is like off the scale. Like it's nearly as long as the film, the trivia for this. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. How, how about you? How's, where's this on your Tarantino scale? We I need think... to come up with a special scale. Sliding scale Tarantino scale toe. I think it's, uh, it's, I think it's probably second behind Pulp Fiction. Second behind Pulp Fiction for me. Mm. I, I love this. I hadn't seen it in, I think I hadn't seen it for a while. And then it came onto um, Netflix some time ago. I, I saw it like three months ago. And when uh, you chose it, then I was thinking, could I get away with not watching it again? I was like, no, that's silly. I need to. I should just watch it again because I really enjoyed it. Um, and I hadn't watched it for a while because I thought it looked best on the cinema, and I thought it still worked great um, on the smaller screen on the TV. So I was happy to watch it. And I'm, you know, this is going to pay into my re- repeat viewing score. 
but I love this. There's so many things I love about this film. Is like, first of all, Colonel Hans Lander, I think, is one of the best screen villains in a long time. I just think he's absolutely outstanding. And um, I was super happy when uh, Christoph Waltz won the won the best supporting actor and Oscar for him because I just thought he just shows people how to how to act amazingly. I think he's one of the mm-hmm. best on screen presences we have. And when I see him, when you see him in films which are lesser. I always just feel sorry for him because I know he can do can do really good stuff, um, and the, I love the kind of patchiness in this because you have the you have the bastards on one side doing their thing where they're almost like you got the, the bear Jew and all all the all the um, all the bastards are kind of having a laugh with it at the same time as they're scalping people, which is gross, which is Tarantino kind of gross, and I love the storyline with Melanie um, Laron and the and the cinema and how those kind of merge together. I think it's, re- it's really well done um, to ultimately off the off the fourth rack uh, and stuff like that so i think it's really i, I really really enjoy it i think it's, it's really good yeah I, there's there's some inconsistencies with like for me with stylistically wise when for example they introduce hugo stiglitz and they use like really emboldened fonts and everything and then they um they introduce something else and it's like really kind of crazy font then everything else is just like really muted and for me, that's, I know it's like a little thing like that, but something like that, I think stylistically should carry on all the way through. But again, that's, you know, it's Tarantino. He just does what he wants to do. And that's, and that's absolutely fine. Um, yeah. Any, any other thoughts on, 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 well, Christoph Waltz, for example, or, or other kind of movie, movie villains in general? I think you hit it on the, I mean, he, his character was so amazing. I mean, he, he just did an amazing job acting in this that I, before I, I saw this, I, wasn't really familiar with any of his work, but as soon as I no. saw this for the first time, I went, I looked up all the movies that he was in and okay, I need to watch all these movies because he just did <laughs> such an amazing job um, acting. Of course, he doesn't necessarily get the same sort of uh, script that <laughs> for all of his movies that he did for this mm. one. But um, that, I mean, that opening scene where he yeah. just bounces back and forth between different languages and, there's actually a reason for that, you know, towards the end of it, you find out, you know, oh, the people, the Jews hiding in the floorboard don't speak English. So that's why he's been bouncing back and forth between languages. It's not just for us, the the viewers that, you know, you're doing this for. Um, but yeah, it, he he plays a really good villain that you start to really hate towards the end. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Brian, what are your thoughts? Uh, yeah, he's a, he's a great villain. Uh, he's you know he's up there with the Hannibal Lecters of the world, which um, I think that Tarantino's intention to to make the Nazis more likable, more attractive, more they dress better. You we actually get to to know them better. Like they're actually conflicted uh, more than the Americans seem to be about the violence that they're perpetrating on people. Um, I think that Tarantino does this intentionally, and um, it, he certainly carries through with a, an evil likability. Helen, are your thoughts on uh, Hans Lander or any any other any any other aspects of the film? So I did have a question: Is scalping someone really that easy? Because they make it look hmm. like super easy. I've never done know? it. <laughs> <laughs> just kind of, I thought it'd be a bit more different. Anyway, I think it's um, harder if you're bald. <laughs> And the Apaches used to actually shave their heads to make it harder. That would oh, make okay. sense. Um, the, mm-hmm. But the body count in this is actually 301, apparently, which is... Is that based quite, on the cinema going... I think it must be, yeah. yeah. So that, that kind of is based on a true story because it's based on the Chicago fire, the, the kind of elements of that 
that happened. So mm. that element is did happen at some point, mm. not related. Um, there was also some other things that I thought were, were quite interesting. I completely forgot that Michael Fassbender was in it. Mm. And apparently Simon Pegg was going to play his character. How different mm. a film um, mm. would that, mm. that have been? Um, but there was also something that um, I, I found out which didn't, that I thought was just a bit creepy was that it's it's not um Tarantino actually chokes dying Kruger's character because apparently he didn't think that Christoph Waltz could do it the way he wanted or with like enough kind of passion so it's it's actually Tarantino's hands that are choking mm. her which oh really yeah mm, so interesting. after after like reading that I was a bit like oh I feel a bit sick um but in terms of like things like um Brad Pitt bingo he's seen there's a scene where he's eating so you can you can collect that in in your um Brad Pitt bingo isn't he eating pretty much the first time after after he says after he introduces Inglorious Bastards when we see the bear do that's he's eating in that scene isn't he Mm -hmm. so that's quite early on (laughs) if you're playing the Brad Brad Pitt bingo eating game (laughs) um I love the scene I love that fast bender scene and I I think that's the first time I saw him I think it's the first time I saw Daniel Brawl definitely the first time I remember seeing Christoph Waltz and this is one thing that Tarantino does well he, he seems to be able to pick these guys I'm sure Fassbender had a career beforehand and he, he must have done um, the uh, Starvation film uh, was it Famine? Hunger. I can't remember the student Hunger. Sorry? Hunger. Hunger yeah uh, he must have, he, I think he must have done that before doing this but he was you know in this film he just absolutely shines and again Fassbender can speak German Christoph Waltz can speak different languages and I love it when you see people just switching between languages really well but that scene in the bar is I think is an, astonishing as well as you know the scene at the top of the film with with Hans Lander. But on rewatch, I'm like, Michael, just stop talking. You don't need to say anything. They already know. They already know something's up. So you just need to stop talking, and everything will kind of be alright. So it's a bit it's a bit irritating, but still, it's like, fuck, what's going on here? It is, but it's almost in in my mind. It's almost more relatable, like because when you get nervous, some people just start blurting out more and they just start sure. talking more. And so if you're in that situation where he knows that they're all undercover and they're, you know, trying not to get found out, then you're just going to want to talk more and, and try to talk <laughs> your way out of it, which ends up not working. But <laughs> I can see how that would be relatable. Because it's, it's great when this wall is kind of falling apart slowly, but he manages to pull it back by telling that private Wilhelm or Sergeant Wilhelm to go sit back down. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you don't belong to this table and then suddenly zzz, record scratch there's an ss officer who's also like mm-hmm. yeah I, I don't know where you're from mate where where is you from mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and his story's not very good is it you, no, you'd story's... be like mm, sure about this <laughs> um and then i remember the second time re-watching looking out for that, that how he did the three fingers mm-hmm. thing yeah because i remember missing it in the um in the first time round. um and again, I just think things like that are really are really well played in this. Um, what I mean, what apart from was there anything else from the scalping apart from the scalping that you thought was particularly grim in this? There's a few. <laughs> Tarantino, Brian, Brian, you you were a fan of the uh, tenant Tarantino gore. Death by fist. Uh, I've written down as a note. So if that, <laughs> that happens. Uh, no, I mean the violence is the violence. I don't. I don't particularly like it or, or not like it. I think it, you know, it becomes sort of gratuitous at a point to where it doesn't really affect me um, or it doesn't sort of register. But um, no, not, not really. Um, what is, one thing that sort of bothers me about Tarantino's uh, episodic, uh, you know, scenes is that 
especially in this this movie, I think that it illustrates this, is that it becomes almost formulaic. You have the bad guy who comes over and goes, hmm, something's not right here. And then you have the person trying to hide it. And that happens throughout this movie over and over and over again. And it becomes um, a little tiresome to me at times. Does anybody else ever feel like that? Like you go, okay, the bad guy's going to try and figure out what's going on here. And then they're going to try and cover it up. And then there's going to be a really, really... Uh, spurt of violence, right? That's one thing I would give Tarantino is that he, the violence is over the top in this film, like it usually is, but it's realistic in the sense that it's, it happens very quickly and it ends very quickly, which is what typically mm. happens in any kind of violent scene. Yeah. I think I, I, I see your point you're making. So thinking back to um, once upon a time in Hollywood, I think there's a few scenes like that where, you know, going into spawn ranch, for example, there's like, that doesn't go the way you think it's going to go, but um, there are those moments where Tarantino can dial up the tension. I think he plays with that. I see Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I think he plays with the fact that you think something's just going to go crazy at any second. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not going to spoil. It. I'm not going to talk about anything more about mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I can see that there is a, a Tarantino formula. I don't think anyone else can make this the film in the same way. If anyone else made this, it would, it would be a completely different setup. Do you think that's kind of because we're we're like used to Tarantino's language and style? And that we just sort of almost maybe expect it, and you just kind of you just s- slip into like his his world of like vignettes and like that kind of structure. I think if you've been, if you've been growing up with his films, he's educating you as to his style. So I mm-hmm. think his last final film, quote unquote, if it is his last film, he will it will be Tarantino dialed up to eleven. The same way like uh, Wes Anderson. Like he's he's kind of educated you with his type of films. So when you're going into his next film, which already, if you've seen trailers for it, you're like, oh, that's a Wes Anderson film. That's that's clearly who's mm-hmm. done that film. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not necessarily good. It's like a shorthand, isn't it? It's like with um with stand up cre- comedians when you when you know their style, they already got you eating up the palm of their hands straight away. Could once they've taken the stage, they already know they have you. So I think that's Tarantino is working on that. Uh, which if you ever get to that stage in your in your career with anything, that's a great position to be in. I think. Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, anything else to say, guys, before we head to the scores? I was just going to say, um, I know it's really, really childish, but I, the, the <laughs> bit I find that the funniest is where, obviously, he's uh, Lando's worked out that then they're obviously not Italian and Brad Pitt and <laughs> um, Eli Roth. Basically, worked out. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he's getting them to repeat their names, and they're, it's. it's yeah very silly but very funny and then when they're they're trying to get out of their seats and they're scoozy scoozy um, i love brad pitt's accent and then everything <laughs> buongiorno <laughs> like <he's> just... <laughs> well yeah. one thing i want to say about this is actually i mean americans and to a slight lesser extent uh, british viewers are kind of tired with the brush that they're not interested in watching subtitle films uh mm-hmm. but in this film it's like it's pretty much 50 50 Subtitles, mm-hmm. uh, no subtitles, isn't it? Can you what what do you know? What kind of filmmakers took uh, took of that at all? Did they were they pissed off at all? Or were they did they feel tricked into watching a subtitle film, or did they not even I, register because that's really how subtitles work? You kind of just don't realize it. I think. I mean, for for this film in particular, I think it's a little bit different than just a uh, being that you know the germans were speaking in german and so that's going to be subtitled and americans are speaking in english and you know that in that way i think tarantino used the language in different ways like you were just talking about helen there where um 
they're speaking Italian and, and because they have horrible accent in Italian, like <laughs> that's how they get found out. Or um, like in the beginning of the movie, like we were talking about earlier, where Walt and Landers using bouncing between the different languages because the Jews hidden under the floorboard can't speak English. And so he's actually using these different languages in order to almost play a, a pretty big plot point for a lot of the different parts, which I think is something I haven't really seen a lot before with, mm. um, with other movies that actually use language in that way. And of course the, the, the poor German accent is what brings down, um, Fassbender as well. So it's, yeah. It's, yeah. 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 It, Cause it, it does play with it very intelligently. And um, it's just more the fact that, you know, people were angry that Parasite won best film because it's mm. a, it's a foreign film and, <laughs> you know, I know a lot of people here in the UK who, if you say we're going to see a, a subtitle film, they're like, oh, for fuck's sake. But <laughs> but then if they said, let's go and watch The Glorious Bastards, of which 50% of it is in, in is subtitled, that's not a concern. I just think that's mm-hmm. it's, uh, it's something that people should... I'm fighting Bong <laughs> home director Bong's corner here, maybe, for him. That's all I'm saying. Um, well, I think right. for, a, for a director... Um, to choose to use subtitles and to write it is, is really a risk because you have to, it's, there's an opportunity cost there. You have to take away from the ability to see what's going on if you're having to read at the bottom of the screen. And so you may, you have to take that in consideration when you're setting up, you're staging things and you have to sort of slow down the pace a little bit. Um, so you got to be really confident in your visuals, I think, to, to buy into that because you're right. A lot of American audiences, um, they do not like to have to read. <laughs> but do you think that's that true, though? Because we, you get French films and Polish films and whatever different language films, and American films and British films are are are, are subtitled in different lang- in different markets. Um, I'm not sure that that it you know the the framing is that bad because I think you quite quickly learn to just flip between them very and and, and understand what's going on. Do you not think? Yeah, I think there's uh, there's another aspect of it too that I I have you know friend who's dyslexic and so like he can't really he he just can't read the subtitle fast enough right before the next one comes on especially if the dialogue's moving quickly and so I think Brian's point there is something that you know to slow it down a little bit um, maybe not so much that you're losing the pacing that you need but also being aware that you are making people read things and so that's gonna <laughs> that's gonna affect that's gonna affect yeah. it i mean i don't know I, I watch a lot of films on movie and to be honest like maybe about 50 percent of those are foreign or with subtitles and i think having watched like a really wide range of films that sort of if the film itself is really really good and if the acting's really good and everything else is really good then you can kind of almost sort of fill in fill in the gaps with your mind when you're reading it as well because you're half watching and you're half reading and you mm. if the actors are giving a certain emotion then you you can almost sort of predict what they're going to say or without having to completely mm. focus in on the words you you get the feeling so that's kind of how i feel about subtitle films i mean i it literally makes no difference to me if it's subtitled or not whether mm. you know if it's a great film, then I'd want to see it. Subtitled is usually, to me, a, a sign that I'm going to enjoy the movie simply because it's probably <laughs> going to be European and it's going to be something yeah. I don't get to see a lot of. But, sure. um, you know, the experience, the, the movie-going experience today is much different from 
you know, say primitive cinema, cinema uh, silent films, when they would have intertitles, right? So they wouldn't scroll the the, uh, the words across the bottom of the screen. They would stop everything and put up a pretty <laughs> little title, and you have to read that, and then they would go on. So it does force people today to sort of, um, you know, catch up. Hello, I'm Sam Pei. And I'm Martin Zotzostwick. And together we host a show called Song, song by song, song, where we deal with the music of Tom Waits. We've been going since uh, 2015. Every week we talk about a new track. Uh, we've made our way through 15 seasons so far of his music. And now we're going back to the early years. And if you haven't listened to Tom Waits before, it's not the growly stuff. It's not the stuff where he's hitting an automobile with a bone for percussion. <laughs> it's a nice, easy way into his music. If that sounds like something you'd be interested in, you should check out our website, songbysongpodcast.com, or put Song by Song into your podcatcher of choice. Well, uh, on that, let's head to the scores. Hey, welcome to the Fitch. Fix, fix, fix. Welcome to the Flix Watcher scores. All of our scores <laughs> are out of five. Only been doing this for 150 episodes. Yeah, no, yeah. They're, they're all out of five, and we'll kick oh. off with the recommendability, please, from you, Dan. Uh, I'm going to give this a 4.5. Um, it is, as well, I mentioned earlier, it's my favorite Tarantino film, but I think it's easy to recommend because. If you can make it past that opening sequence with Christoph Waltz and that dialogue and, you know, kind of a drawn out conversation to essentially reveal what a lot of movies probably would reveal in just a couple of minutes. Um, if you can make it past that and you enjoy it, then you're going to like the rest of the movie. If not, then mm. it's not for you. Brian. Uh, I gave it a four on recommendability. Uh, I would say probably because not everybody is going to want to read uh, that many subtitles and probably the violence. Helen yeah it is violent it's really violent but then I was thinking all of his films were violent or maybe it's just this one um, even though this is quite low on my sort of Tarantino scale I'm still going to give this a four I think yeah I'm going to give it a four I think the problem that I have with this is that it's basically solving violence with violence and mm-hmm. that's it and mm-hmm. um, I kind of maybe would have liked to have seen a little bit of balance or a little bit of light because um i mean spoilers only like three main characters kind of make it to the end mm. and it's there's just quite a lot of death and violence and it might have been a little and i was thinking um because i was kind of comparing it like oh what did i score port fiction and in port fiction kind of like the good guys kind of win sort of a little bit more in this and in this no one wins and no one's a good guy and everything's just, you know, blood and violence. Do you, do you think that's maybe Tarantino's way of saying, well, this is war and in war, sometimes nobody wins. War, war sucks. Yeah. yeah, a little bit, but then, I don't know, possibly, but I just, in in terms of what I, I want from a Tarantino, I think I prefer him a bit more when he's a bit, a bit lighter. I think I think mm. his tone and style works better for me when it, it's not sort of linked to real life. Well, it may. I've heard him quoted as saying, "America is one of the only countries who's never had to face its own history, especially in war." And so, I think to Dan's point, he's 
even though I would consider this to be sort of a f- more fantasy than uh, reflective of history, um, I think it may be an attempt to do that, to say the Americans are on an even keel as far as violence goes, even though we may not acknowledge that. Mm. I kind of think, like, imagine what his Vietnam film would be. <laughs> <laughs> that, that would be, I would go and see that. It would be more violent yeah, than this one, yeah. probably. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm going to go for 4.5 here because I think the violence will the violence will turn people off, and Tarantino being Tarantino to the to the nth degree uh, might turn people off as well. But I still love it to bits, and even though it's a bit long, um, it's the episodic nature kind of keeps does keep it chugging along. I think, and you know, people like Fassbender being in it, he's in it for maybe 20 minutes, right? It's kind mm-hmm. of it's kind of a weird thing for such a, you know, a huge actor now. Um, you look back and Daniel Brühl's in it kind of sparingly um, used and used in it. But for, for Dan and Brian, do you recognize some of the um, supporting Inglorious Bastards? Like Daniel Brühl? Yeah. Uh, from Show You Noel. Great. No, no. I mean, the, the actual, the, I mean, the Bastards themselves. Oh, um, the Bastards. Oh, yeah. Um, I couldn't na- name them, but a lot of the people I've seen, like um, BJ Novak from The Office. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think Levine, that's the only uh, one I remember. Sam Levine is, is in Freaks and Geeks, mm. um, and Paul Rust and Eli Roth. Eli um, Roth, yeah. Eli Roth, yeah, yeah. So we had a few yeah. people in there in in the Bastards, which who've done who've done bigger things since since the uh, Inglorious Bastards. Well, I, mm-hmm. Eli, well, Eli Roth was well established at that point as a director, wasn't he? He wasn't. He doesn't do that much acting anymore because um, he wants to stay directing. But he was good in this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I like how you picked him to be the Jew, the bear Jew, right? The most violent. <laughs> was he? Did, did he have a Boston accent as well? Yeah, yeah. I do love a Boston accent. Um, okay, Dan, uh, repeat viewing score. Uh, repeat viewing for me, uh, three point five. Um, it is like you mentioned earlier, Kobe. It is long. Uh, it is. A, tarantino movie so and it because it's so dense and so violent it's one of those things of you know you're not going to be watching it every month um but you know <laughs> I'll, I'll probably watch it maybe once a year or so you know every every so often yeah uh brian yeah i gave it a four uh i think that there's a lot of value in re-watching the story itself and to see what um what tarantino is trying to say about um, the war and about violence and about um, this event, about Nazis and, and that kind of thing, because I think it's less reflective of history and more um, uh, philosophical, maybe. So I think there's a lot of rewatch building. Helen? Yeah, so I, two hours and 32 minutes. It's very long. Um, I say I haven't revisited it since it. It, I saw it at the cinema, and I'm probably not going to go back to it at all. So 1.5. 1.5. For me, I hadn't seen it for a while because I didn't think it was going to look that good on the small screen, and then I did, and I was like, "This still, this is still great." So I'm going to watch it more times than I have, <laughs> since, you know, in the past 15 years. So I think I'm going to go for a 3.5 because I think I will continue to watch it, um, and almost like interchange it between that and Pulp Fiction. Uh, as my favorite Tarantino films. Um, small screen score, Dan. Uh, I'm going to give it a four. Um, I think I, I did see it in, in cinema the first time. And it is with just with the, the music and his, his style, I think works really well on the big screen. Um, but like you said, 
uh, a moment ago. I think it works really well on TV as well. I haven't tried watching it on my smartphone, so I try maybe try that <laughs> next. But uh, but I think it translates really well to small screen. Ryan, I give that a three. Uh, I think like most of his movies, they're they're set to be epics. They're set to be you know something like the hateful eight which he released on 70 millimeter he's got that wide format aesthetic and i just don't think you can you certainly can't get that on a smartphone uh maybe in a big screen tv but i think being being in the cinema and with other people uh is a must for this Ellen, i kind of get the impression that tarantino would not be pleased with people watching his films on netflix on <laughs> on the ipad or like on, on their commutes. phone, on their commute, yeah. or anything like that. He'd um, be like, I didn't make them like this. Um, um, it's interesting what you said about the music, because when I was watching this second time round, I was like, I'm thinking about it now, I can't think of moments in the film associated with music as well as I can for like nearly all of his other films. Mm. So I think mm. this is probably for me his like weakest scored film in comparison to everything else because I can see like some of the key scenes or scenes that stood out to me, but they don't have the music going with them, which is completely different for his other films. Um, I, I think there's always music, but it's just not as high in, in the mix. Um, like with the in the in the bar scene, for example, when the SS officer suddenly makes his appearance known, then the music stops. And up until that point, it's just been kind of going in the background. Um, but I, I agree with you. It's not it's Tarantino. One of the things, one of the big draws for Tarantino film was his like jukebox, almost musical style for dropping mm-hmm. a songs into it. And you'd love his soundtrack as well as as much as you'd love. Um, sorry, Needle Drop, uh, not not jukebox. Yeah, Needle Drop, kind of like picking ace songs to go along with fantastic scenes like the stuck stuck in the middle with you, and loads of loads of loads mm-hmm. of um, scenes in Pulp Fiction, for example. But this isn't it. But do you think that if he had put those needle drop tracks in, almost crowbarred them in, you know, dropping in um, Helter Skelter by the Beatles in there just for shits and giggles, would that have been a weird contrast in this in this film? I don't think it's um, necessarily about having the pop hits um, right. because a lot of the scenes that I really like in um, Kill Bill 1 are mm. um, like instrumental, so not um, diegetic, for the word, so not actually mm-hmm. in the film. They're, they're like instrumental that go along with it. So um, the only bit that I can really remember is actually a sound from um, Kill Bill that they use at the start um, of, I think, maybe Act 3, Scene 3, uh, where Melanie Laurent's outside the cinema and the, the car pulls up. There's a, a sound there. So I don't know. It's just that I kind of expected maybe more of a soundtrack from him or um, or at least a musical presence. But anyway, um, so four. I'm going to have four small screens. So it's similarly um, to what Dan said about, um, I think you, you can, you watch it on screen, but also if you have the opportunity to go and see it at the cinema, then you should always do that with Tarantino's films. You know, one thing I'd like to say about the score, the thing that impressed me the most about this was uh, at the beginning, the opening scenes uh, at the uh, French dairy farmer's house. Um, mm. He opens it up with that, it's it's a it's a, a mix of a spaghetti western, mm-hmm. you know, sort of thing, and then a classical uh, piece that I don't know what the name of it is, but we've all heard it, and I wouldn't be surprised if the composer was German. But he mixes these two together, and it's really interesting how he sets the tone uh, 
for both the story through uh, the use of that that sort of a mix-up. Nice. Um, yeah, I'm going to go for a four here. Small screen score. I think it's amazing in the cinema, um, and I've had a great fun with it. And I think it's a shared screen experience more than the than what's on the screen. I think uh, that that pulled me through. But I think I will. I'm going to see. I don't think I've sought out his the soundtrack to this at all. Um, and Spotify is good for that. So I think I'm going to search it out tomorrow uh, and have a listen whilst whilst going on a walk. Um, engagement score, Dan. Uh, I give it a four as well for engagement. Um, it is. I don't think there's any movie that I <laughs> haven't been interrupted in in the middle of, but um, this is definitely one that once I, once I start it, I try to watch it all the way to the end, which mm. again goes back to the repeat viewing because you know that you're, what you're getting into. <laughs> Be like, I need to have some time set aside for this one. <laughs> yeah, totally. Um, Ryan, I'll give it a three point eight. Um, it's, it's pretty engaging. I just, I feel like sometimes I, I, I feel like I know what's going to happen in the scene, uh, because I get used to it. That sort of Tarantino vignette, heavy dialogue. Um, but yeah, overall pretty engaged. I mean, it, you have the violence, but you have the, another Tarantino trademark is the dialogue. And I think when it's, when it's on point, it's, it's fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I think the, one of the scenes that I always like, oh, is that Mike Myers, Mike Myers uh, <laughs> telling him about Operation Kino, and I just think mm. it's a bit too hammy. I know why he's done it. It's, it's you know, it's a bit of levity in the film, but I think there's already the levity kind of built into it. Um, maybe it's just me that's not a fan of the Mike Myers. <laughs> he was um, an interesting cast there for that that role. I thought I was. I thought he kind of stood out a little bit. <laughs> uh, Helen, engagement score. Yeah, just on Mike Myers. I mean, he his kind of sort of popularity cred kind of went pretty quickly <laughs> and now when you sort of see things like that you're like oh yeah that was like a thing 10 years ago it <laughs> wouldn't happen now i don't think um yeah so engagement four i think i think you if you're not engaged then you'll you'll miss kind of like the subtleties and the the, the, the clever bits that happen with language um but it is it's two it's two hours so two it is a long one to be in on and for that much kind of violence um mm. but yeah if you're not engaged then you're going to get less out of the film i'm going to go 4.5 um if i'm going to start the film i'm i'm into it so um <laughs> yeah like brian uh, like dan said if you if you've if you're going to press play in this i've allocated the time to do so um and enjoy <laughs> sure. every step of the way so that gives us an overall score of 3.8. What did it lose points for Pete Viewing score? Yeah, that was me. Helen, Sorry. 1.5. Don't know. No need to apologize. <laughs> um, but that's all good. Um, so as we say, guys, uh, do follow us on Twitter. We are at FlixWatcherPod. Um, because every time we review a film, we uh, do a little shout out and ask for your opinions. Um, so in this case, we're reviewing Inglourious Bastards with Dan LeFebvre from Based on a True Story podcast and Brian. Have you seen it? Tell us your thoughts on our shout out. Um, and we have a fair few responses here. Dan, do you want to take us with the first response you got? Yeah, the uh, first response is from Shaken, not Nerd, and they simply say, oh, going to say it's in my top five Tarantino films. Ha ha. That begs the question, which, you know, what else is in there? Oh. Also, he hasn't got yeah. that many films, so... <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, I would like I would like to it? see that top five and and yeah. see what where it is. Um, Brian. Oh, yeah, the, we've got one from Easy Riders Raging Podcast. They say it's Tarantino's best true masterpiece that I would say is one of my favorite films of the odds. Uh, leaves me wanting to see more of all the characters and stories. Oh, and it has a painfully great soundtrack. Five out of five. Okay, so we need to listen out for that soundtrack. Mean, definitely you, need to you, check Helen. that soundtrack mm-hmm. out. Yeah. Um, Helen. Um, so the next one is from a previous episode guest, Retro Ramble Blog. Slightly patchy and overlong, but a great but a great cast and two of the most gripping scenes ever filmed. The opening and the basement bar scene. A bloody mm-hmm. funny alternative look at World War Two. And then he's given four I'm gonna call them four non German fingers. <laughs> <laughs> and see what he's done there. Yep. Very clever. Mm-hmm. And Dan, do you wanna take the next one? Sure, it's uh, from Lee Thomas says top end tarantino with a star making performance from waltz the opening scene is one of the best in recent cinema and he has a bunch of burning <laughs> burning film emojis four out of five burning rolls of film nice nice uh well thank you very much guys can you just sign up by telling everyone where we can find you online um or brian just to recap where what you do and, and maybe the films you like as a, as a way to sign off yeah, um, you can find my podcast at based on a true story podcast.com. You can find all my contact information there and uh, subscribe to the show and such. Uh, and as you probably guess, just from what we talked about earlier, I like movies that are based on history. So that tends tend to be my favorites. <laughs> <laughs> all right, guys. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Yeah, I'm, I'm not on digital media, but yet I work in there. That should explain something about my life. Um, but you can find me if you're ever in the Northland of, uh, of uh, New Zealand. And uh, I like uh, all types of movie, classical films uh, to modern day stuff. Nice. Well, thank you very much, guys. Thanks for coming. Thanks Bye. For having us. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Enjoyed this episode of Flixwatcher podcast? Why not leave us a five-star review on iTunes? You can also follow us at FlixWatcherPod on Twitter and we're at FlixWatcher on Instagram. Thanks as always to the mighty people for their mighty, mighty tunes and Ben from Rockwood Audio for his awesome editing skills. If you're looking to get your podcast edited as sweet as this, get in touch with Ben and that's Rockwood, R-O-K-K, Wood audio tell them flicks what you sent you you just heard a stripped media production